0: And I I also think that, you know, speaking to the the theatricality of this album, its lyrics are so vivid, right? So you've got these like really beautiful, really like imagistic lyrics. You can see the visual that that opening verse paints in your head. Um, And then it explodes in the chorus, right?
1: Welcome to Long Live the Music, a podcast from It's All Dead, made by music fans for music fans. I'm Kyle Hawk. Welcome to Long Live the Music. I'm Kyle Hawk, Editor-in-Chief at itsalldead.com. Thank you for joining me on the show today. If you're a regular visitor to It's All Dead or a listener to this podcast, you know how much we love our 10-year retrospective features and conversations. And we just had an album uh, last week, actually, that turned 10 that was a, a pretty big one. Some Nights by Fun turned 10 years old, which uh, just seems crazy to me. I was uh, noticing on Time Hop. Uh, Last week that I was seeing during the Grammys, which was the 2013 Grammys in February, where Fun was nominated for several awards and kind of my live tweeting of that whole thing. And just like how cool it felt for those of us who had been listening to Nate and Jack and Andrew and their bands for years before uh, Fun blew up. I mean, there was something so cool in that moment. Of watching these guys from the scene that we love in bands that we love that were now together doing this other thing. And it was just like taking over the world. It was like the epicenter of pop for like a, a full year. And you know, at that time it's interesting because the scene as we had known it was kind of changing. Um, you know, Warp Tour was sort of winding down, but a lot of the bands and I, I think figures from that scene were starting to step into a different sort of light. From you know, a, a popular music standpoint. A year later, you had uh, Haley Williams and Zed uh, w- with their song on the charts. Uh, Paramore with Ain't It Fun ended up becoming nominated for a Grammy. That came out a year later. Uh, 2013, Fallout Boy returned and was almost a completely different band than what we'd known previously. It was sort of this transition in which some of the Um, I guess the big stakeholders from the scene had found new life and were making new and exciting music and fun. We're kind of at the forefront of that in 2012 with some nights. And so um, I'd been doing some looking around. I'd seen several people were kind of writing about the anniversary of this album and uh, ran across a piece by Sam Anzella at MTV News where uh, she took a look back, talked with Jeff Basker, um, it was a really fantastic piece of just kind of examining not only the moment uh, and what it was about Some Nights and We Are Young that made that album so huge, but also just thinking. After the fact, everything that's happened, because that's been kind of its own set of stories of uh, where we haven't had another fun album since some nights. And of course, Jack Andonoff has gone on to do a lot of really awesome, incredible things. Nate Roos uh, was doing some solo stuff for a while, has had some big um, songwriting opportunities. But it's who would have thought in 2012 in that moment what would have happened next. And it's a really fascinating conversation to have. So I reached out to Sam, she was cool enough to come on the show and chat with me about it. I love this conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it too. Here's Sam Manzella talking about the 10th anniversary of Funds Some Nights. (music) Uh, Very excited today to be joined by Sam Manzella. She's a Brooklyn-based writer who's currently an associate editor for Logo, where she covers LGBTQ news and culture. She also contributes at MTV News, where she recently penned a piece on the 10th anniversary of Some Nights uh, by Fun, and it's titled Fun, Some Nights Redefined Pop Rock and Reintroduced Jack Antonoff. I came across this article the other day and I was like, I absolutely need to talk to her about this. I'm I'm so excited uh, to have Sam here and talk about some nights. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much, Kyle. Thanks for having me.
1: You uh, talked on the article. I mean, you mentioned right off the bat how it's hard for you to conjure memories of 2012 that don't include some nights playing in the background. I, before we dive into anything, I want you to take me back a little bit and tell me where were you in 2012? what was this album for you in, in the midst of that time period?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was 15 for context. Um, so I was, I, I just felt like this album when it came out and I first heard it. And I remember hearing we are young and some nights on the radio, like in the car with my mom. I didn't even have my permit yet. I just remember being in that backseat and feeling like these songs spoke to me in a way that most music did not. Um, Yeah, I was I was a teen. I was very young.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, did you have background with like the other bands that they'd been involved with previously? Did you listen to the format, or, or was fun like your first introduction into it?
0: They were my first introduction, and I was I actually um, their debut album I listened to like retroactively, so I I wasn't familiar with the band um, until some nights.
1: Yeah. So um, obviously. Fun and exciting to get to write this retrospective piece 10 years later. It's crazy uh, that it's been 10 years because this is an album that has like such, I don't know, seminal moments and culture that it's kind of like intertwined. You still hear this album, you know, like it's kind of just it's one of those albums where the songs are just kind of like part of our lives when you like venture out into the world. Tell me a little bit about the background for this piece and how it all came to fruition.
0: Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, I contribute to MTV News. It's kind of like Logo's sister brand at um, our larger parent company, Paramount Global. Okay. Um, and our fabulous editors there, uh, Pat Hoskin and Coco Romack, um, they pitched this franchise that is still ongoing right now as we're recording this, um, called New Retro Week. And the idea was basically that we would explore um, really you know, significant albums and singles from 2012, now that it's been 10 years. Um, and Pat, Pat and I worked pretty closely together and he had floated around the idea of doing a piece on this album. And I immediately was like, I volunteer, (laughs) please, Mm -hmm. please assign this to me. Um, this album just holds such a a special place in my heart and instantly transports me back to being that like 15 year old in suburbia with these lofty dreams. (laughs) And yeah, there's just something about this album that is so evocative.
1: Yeah, for sure. And it's it's really fascinating uh it's it's funny that you've got that ongoing series because we that's uh, from our infancy at it's all dead we're just like most people obsessed with nostalgia but we do 10 year reflective pieces throughout the year every year and so it's like one of my favorite things to do is like look back and think about like what does this mean in the context of now and um this album specifically there's so many ways like there's so many crossroads (laughs) no matter your musical background there's just a lot of different touchstones associated with this album and so like you mentioned they had an album previously aim and ignite which i think came out in 2009 but the Mm -hmm. story of this band at the start was like it's a quote-unquote super group and of course it's really only a super group if you were like into the indie rock or emo scene because it's not like you know the format (laughs) was ever on the radio or something but that's kind of how it was spun um that album was there and you know i I remember kind of passively listening to it, but you know, then they signed with Fuel by Ramen, then Some Nights comes out, then there's a Super Bowl ad. There were like all these kind of like moments that just felt like the the dominoes were starting to fall, and then kaboom, it, it blew yes. up with We Are Young. What in your mind, as you were thinking back on this, was the moment, or what was it that really made that song just like shoot into the stratosphere?
0: I it's interesting talking to I interviewed for this piece um, Jeff Basker, who was. One of the producers on this album, I had a few producers, but um, he mm-hmm. and Mike Easterlin, who I also spoke to, um, who at the time was a high level exec at Field by Ramen and still works for their parent company. They had both mentioned um, Nate Ruess's voice, like the way that he just mm-hmm. has those powerhouse vocals, um, kind of like a la Freddie Mercury, right? Just something that's yeah. so so evocative, almost theatrical, almost like a, like a tinge of musical theater. There's something about um, his voice in particular that I think just grab people. Um, And I I also think that, you know, speaking to the the theatricality of this album, um, it's it's lyrics are so vivid, right? So you've got these Mm -hmm. like really beautiful, really like imagistic lyrics. You can see the visual that that opening verse paints in your head. Yeah. Um, and then it explodes in the chorus, right? It's this anthemic chorus. Mm-hmm. It's a simple chorus. It's not it's not particularly like complicated, but oh my god, over those instrumentals, like it it's it's I think what made it stand out was that combination of the vocals people hadn't heard in a long time on like a like a pop rock song. Yeah. Um the the fusion of just lyrics that were so emotional and so so easy to imagine. And and that like really heavy hitting, knocking, you know, instrumentals, the percussion on the chorus, like it, it's just this perfect fusion of mm-hmm. different different stylistic influences, different worlds. Um, yeah. it it I can't yeah, it was I think it was unlike anything that people had heard in a long time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you brought up Jeff Basker and I, I've been thinking about this. A lot lately. Um, I interviewed Jack Antonoff the week that we are young hit number one. And I think back about that oh, interview wow. a lot because I think of the things that I would have asked if I'd known, you know, where we would be now. But oh <laughs> during gosh. that interview, yeah we, <laughs> yeah, we talked a lot about Jeff Basker. And we talked about, you know, because at the time he was coming off a run of having worked with Beyonce. He was involved with yeah. my beautiful Art, twisted fantasy, and he was kind of the guy that could create these things. It was this moment where genre, we were kind of starting to blend the lines of genre and in their minds, he was the perfect person to come in and help them take what they were crafting and do exactly what, what you were just, uh, describing. And it's so interesting to think about his involvement. And one of the things that, uh, Jack talked about at that time was how there is this, like for as celebratory as we are young is there is this dark undercurrent to moments oh, yeah. of the album. And that was something that Jeff was able to really help them tap into sonically, Uh, And it's just, it's masterful in the way that it is executed. Um, Talking with, having the chance to talk with Jeff now about all of this, what was that experience like? What did you sense from him as he was thinking back on the creation of this?
0: I sensed so much reverence, honestly. It seemed like it was really, really special to him. And it's interesting too, because I've I've done a few different retrospective pieces like this and, and interviewed producers, you know, like five, 10 years after the fact and, they're not always super excited to talk about oh, no. an album that's a decade yeah. old, but um right. Jeff had this very palpable sense of excitement. And something that I didn't realize after talking to him that I learned was um he he and Nate Roos are very close to this day. Like they still yeah. write together every week. Okay. So not only did this album, you know, um like just become a massive success, and you know, he put his name and his production stamp on it, but he also gained a lifelong friend. And and I think yeah. that is something that that also separates it in his in his mind. But yeah, he was he was like more excited to talk about this album than um, pretty much anyone else I've ever spoken to for a retrospective.
1: Yeah, that's <laughs> really, really cool to hear. So.
0: Yeah, that's
1: awesome to kind of hear that where he's at.
0: It was funny too because yeah, I I told Mike Easterlings I interviewed him first, um, and I told Mike that I was trying to pin down Jeff. Uh, and Mike had joked like, "Oh, it's funny, you know." He's a little hard to pin down, but once you get him started talking about this album, he will talk to you all day. And yeah. we did talk for like an hour.
1: <laughs> well, a- another thing that sticks out to me, because you were talking about Nate's voice and, yeah. you know, he does have such a distinct voice. You know, that was obvious even in in the format days. What Jeff brought out of Nate on this album, it almost feels like Nate became an, another instrument in the band, like his voice was really able to do things on this album that we hadn't heard previously. And it made so much sense when you heard it of like, oh, this is like what i you know, and I've always enjoyed Nate Russo as a vocalist, but hearing some nights, you're like, oh, I didn't know that there was this level. And it feels like Jeff definitely played a role in kind of like helping that come to fruition.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. No, I, I totally agree.
1: You talked about how it kind of, we are young and the success of that song, and there wasn't really anything else that sounded like it. Um, part of me with this album, when I look back on it, it didn't really fit in a specific box. It's like we kind of knew these guys from being in rock bands or whatever, and you could call this rock if you wanted to, but it's not really. It's more pop, but it's not like the pop that we're used to hearing. Do you feel like that notion of like the way that we understood genre and the way that was involving in 2012 kind of like played into this album's success just because it was such a... I don't know, kind of a a diamond in the rough, so to speak, that it was like, oh, this, this makes sense as like a, an evolution of where I want to hear pop music go or something like that.
0: I think it does. And it's interesting too, just uh, this past week, I've spent a lot of time looking back at music from 2012. Like there were so many, you know, phenomenal and really significant albums that came out in that year across genres, like not limited to pop music, right? Mm -hmm. There were so many fantastic, um, like indie rock, alternative albums. I mean, Fiona Apple, The Idler Wheel. Mm-hmm. Um, we at MTV News, we do a bop Shop column every Friday where we we pick a song. Everyone writes up one song on the team, uh, and this this week's column was 2012 themed to go with New Retro Week. Yeah, uh, and I was agonizing over like, what song should I choose? Um, <laughs> because there were just truly so many options. But yeah, I do feel like that that era was kind of when. I feel like now it's very common for artists to not feel beholden to a genre. Like they, they're very comfortable, um, you know, kind of moving between genres or or not even needing the label of a genre to kind of like um, sell or package their music. But mm-hmm. I think that that era, the 2012, 2013, 2014 era was like kind of the genesis of that. It just seemed like there were a lot of different bands yeah. across different genres who, who all of a sudden were very actively blending influences.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I was even looking back because this album ended up becoming nominated for several Grammys and yeah. you look at like the album of the year lineup from 2012 and you, like Frank Ocean and Channel Orange. Yeah. And there was a lot of stuff that was happening oh, around sure. 2011, 2012, where it was like, OK, something new is starting to kind of come out here. And it, it's really fascinating to think about that. Um, so, something else I want to talk about going back to kind of the formation of fun and thinking about Nate and Andrew and and Jack yeah. and where they came from. All of them had been in situations where they had moments where they were kind of like promised the moon, you know, from Ooh. a record label or like Ooh. this, this thing you're involved with is about to pop and and just blow up and they'd all been burned. Um, and so part of fun was to like literally get back to like just having fun, making music. And then right. it happened anyway. And I talked about that with Jack back when I talked with him and there were, I, I, pulled out a few quotes that I thought were interesting in in hindsight. Um, he, he said, you know, in the beginning there was this whole indie rock quality of always apologizing for what you do and always sort of pretending you don't want to be as big as you want to be. Mm. Um, and then if, if we can share what we're doing on a huge level without compromising in any sense, which so far is what we've done, then that's still our goal to take over without losing sight of why we did this in the first place. So he was like fully in a place of like acceptance of like, Hey, if we're just, we're making music that's true to us. If it, If it finally happens, if now is the moment, that's great. That doesn't change anything about what our vision is. One, that's fascinating in the moment. Two, it's fascinating to think about that in terms of like where Jack has gone to now. Oh, yeah. Is it strange to look back uh, and feel like this was like the beginning of what could happen, but also like the literal end of fun? Yeah.
0: Yeah. It is it is it is interesting too. And I was, you know, I was like in preparation for this, I was doing a bit more research back in my notes for this piece. And um, you know, like when they when the band they didn't really like formally break up, they just kind of disbanded to each do their yeah. own thing. Um and yeah, it it is weird to think about this moment as like an ending but also a launching pad for yeah. Jack Antonoff in particular, I think his star has just risen and he he now touches like so many albums across right? pop rock yeah. yeah he's everywhere i
1: mean would you have put your money back then on like if if you knew that fun wasn't going to put it on another album at that moment would you have said oh jack's going to be the the quote unquote winner of this or what cuz i think at the moment it was kind of like nate's the guy that if somebody's oh, going yeah. to go solo here it's nate um
0: no but... i i totally agree i mean nate had that that voice that you're you're right kind of became another instrument it's just that distinctive voice right that is so rousing. No, I I completely agree with you. I would have put my money on Nate sooner than Jack. Yeah.
1: And it, you know, and I say that grand romantic, the album that Nate put out, um, gosh, it's probably been five or six years ago now. I I actually really enjoyed that album. You know, I, I, it wasn't, it's hard because the expectation that got set with some nights for what Nate could do, I think kind of put a thing in people's minds of what they wanted from him, which maybe isn't fully like where he was going to go. And that that's probably why we don't have fun right now is because you've got these two divergent people going down different paths. Um, But that being said, I mean, Nate has still done some pretty awesome stuff uh, since this time Um, to to talk about um, Jack and like all the production. I mean, obviously bleachers has been a success, but really we know Jack from like, Taylor Swift and Lord and Carly Rae Mm -hmm. Jepsen. Lana. Yeah. And so last year, Lindsay Zolads wrote an article for NPR about Olivia Rodrigo's album. She was touching on the fact that uh, Olivia was working with Dan Nigro from As Tall As Lions, which is another Mm -hmm. band out of that kind of emo and indie rock scene. And she said, I do find it pretty surprising that two of the most successful producers in crafting pop music from a feminine point of view came from that Mm -hmm. emo scene. Because as I remember all too well, it was a realm almost entirely devoid of women's voices. And I yeah. I pretty much spent all of last year thinking about that quote because I was like, that's very true. And part of what we do with our site and, and this podcast is kind of like deconstructing this nostalgic scene that we all felt was so cool in the moment. But now in hindsight, it's like, oh, there was a lot of really toxic shit with that. But that quote to me sticks out because it's almost like this is kind of like a best case scenario in a weird way where I feel like the work Jack is doing now is almost more meaningful. Like I I'd almost rather have what we have right now than if like fun continued on or something, if that makes any sense. I don't know if that's a a weird thought, but it's just something that I've been thinking a lot about lately.
0: I think that totally makes sense. And it's interesting too, because like, um, even even though you know, like you and I, who, people who understand music, we know that producers play such an integral role in in making music sound the way that it sounds. But um, from you know, like a pure like a consumer's perspective, right? You see a song. Most people are not looking at the credits and thinking like, mm-hmm. "Oh, this was produced by X, Y, and Z." Like they right. see the artist's name. Maybe they look at the writer, but people don't always look at the producer. Um, so, like I respect the, the folks like Jack Antonoff who can write, who can kind of be the whole package. And who can sing, who can, you know, like Bleachers is phenomenal, but um, they kind of step back behind the scenes and like work with, you know, younger merging talent or talent who want producers that aren't, um, that don't want to produce all of their own music, even if they're writing it like a Taylor Swift figure, right? Um, Yeah. Yeah. I have a lot of respect for that, but it's interesting too. I hadn't really thought about that, how they're supporting so many women in pop.
1: Yeah. It's, it's definitely uh yeah definitely interesting to to noodle on and i you know again going back to that idea of like who would have thought in 2012 that jack was gonna kind of have this direction that he's taking um over over the past 10 years i mean when when that first bleachers album came out for you at that time because it was only a couple years later i mean it was still like fun was still a thing that we thought might go on but bleachers uh I think Strange Desire was that first album for you in that time yes. period. Was that like another thing of like, Oh, I'm following in this direction now based on like what, just how much I enjoyed fun and some nights.
0: It it was honestly, I think in my head, it it be, kind of became an extension of, of fun and some nights. Yeah. Um, yeah I don't know. There was something, I, th- those, those two albums have a very similar vibe to me, like a very similar energy of, um you know like we're going we're trucking forward we're pressing on even even in the face of fear and uncertainty right there's like a yeah. like a hopefulness but also that dark undercurrent that you mentioned i think that that's also very pre- very present in uh that first bleachers album yeah i think about like i want to get better that song even just thinking about that song now that song hit me in the gut um but yeah, yeah i was also <laughs> i was still very young when that song came out and i i felt that similar feeling of like this, this, I can relate to this, I feel seen by just the, the raw emotion in this song, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it's absolutely. kind of interesting, too, because I, I guess I wouldn't have guessed that that Jack would be the one to go on and become this extremely prolific, you know, figure. But um, I think it, it was evident, maybe from that point, too. Maybe, yeah, I had been paying more attention.
1: Well, <laughs> more And something closely. in the article that stood out to me that um kind of pointed to that was mike easterling talking about like you know the lack of co-writers involved in this this really was like their project that they did and i don't know how much i thought about it at the time but i mean there is that sense that if like oh you've kind of like flown under the radar and you've been in these cool indie bands or whatever now you've got the number one song in the world you probably had some people that came in and, and made that happen and we talked about jeff basker from a production standpoint but yes I don't know how many people were thinking that of like, oh, they must've had people come in and write these songs. That isn't what happens. So if you think about that, it does kind of make sense that like there's a lot of room here for growth and a lot of different directions from each of these individuals. So,
0: Oh, absolutely. They all have immense talent, That, yeah. I, yeah, I think Mike made a great point where that that's often not the case these days, especially with, you know, younger artists um, or, or, you know genre defying artists um often like labels just set them up with with writers with established writers, and there's no shame in that, you know, like that's right. not necessarily a bad thing. A lot of people need support, especially in those early stages, but yeah, fun was that that was more rare than it seems,
1: yeah, so talking about everything that has happened in ten years since at this point, would you yeah. ever want a fun reunion, would you ever? would you get excited if you heard like, Oh, they're, they're doing another album and you know, even just as a one-off thing. I, i personally think the chances of that is like under 5% at this point. But like, <laughs> what, yeah. In a, in yeah. a magical world, what would be your response?
0: I, you know, it's one of those things where, and I, I feel this way about a lot of, of like television and then films that are like really near and dear to my heart too. Uh, that, you know, kind of the, the content that I came of age with, like, I kind of just want to let it lie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I don't feel the need for another fun album, um, yeah. but I will say I would absolutely jump at the chance to see the fun trio in concert. I would love a tour.
1: Yeah. Did you ever get <laughs> a chance to see them? Normal.
0: No. And oh, I, no. I'm kicking myself too, because there were a few, there were a few moments where I could, have. I like from the New York area, I, I should have hopped on that when I could, but no. I was still in high school and my mom definitely did not want to drive me to a concert in the city. (laughs)
1: Understandable. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I I mentioned not really thinking much of aim and ignite when it came out, but a year before some nights dropped, I was covering a a panic of the disco show and fun was the opener. One of the openers on that tour. And that night uh, myself and the friend I left with were both like, wait a minute. Like that was kind of great. Like that, you know, and I, from what I knew of fun of having heard that first album and then seeing it in person, there was just something about Nate specifically that that band had a real incredible live energy. And that's, that's the thing of like, you know, thinking about like, Oh, if there was another fun album, I'm, I'm in, you know, the same camp as you that I, I don't need it or even really wanted at this point, but the magic that that group had on stage together, I definitely think is something that uh, we kind of miss out on with um, with them being gone. Um oh absolutely. So obviously you write about a lot of different music. Uh what else is happening? like what what are you looking forward to this year? Like what are the albums that have already come out? What are the albums that are on their way that you're excited about?
0: I'm very I'm I'm in a real um like pop and hyper pop space right now. I feel like mm-hmm. I've been listening to a lot of hyper And it's funny because fifteen year old Sam who loved fun, like I would have I would rather have been caught dead listening to I, I would never have listened to the kind of pop music that I like eat up these days. It, it just yeah. it I was I was pretty like I would say fun, honestly, was was one of my first like oh I like this band that's on the radio. Like yeah, I was one of those annoying teens who was like, I like these <laughs> five year old Death Capper Cutie albums and right. you know, miss me with your songs that are getting radio play. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm I'm very into hyper pop, so I'm excited for um Charlie XEX's album that she keeps teasing. Um the new singles from it have been excellent. Yeah. Um I I I really enjoyed um Kim Petras's slut Pop EP. Okay. Um a, it's funny too, because um my I would say that music is not my main beat, but I end up writing about music a lot because, you know, even within the LGBTQ space, um, there are obviously so many queer and trans identified musicians. Yeah. Um, and I mean the album is just like pop goodness (laughs) but um there's something so so impactful about this pop star who is a trans woman owning naming claiming her sexuality in such a you know like yes i am here i am horny (laughs) and i'm going to sing (laughs) about it and it is unmistakable so that that ep was really fun for me um in terms of what i'm looking forward to i don't what are you looking forward to kyle
1: (laughs) well uh A lot of things. Um, we, uh, just last month wrapped up our, we always do this big most anticipated albums of the, uh, of the year feature. Um, you know, we've, we've all been waiting for My Chemical Romance, uh, to eventually make their return. So that was definitely, um, something that's on the list, assuming it, it happens. We know there's going to be tours, but, um, who, who knows beyond that? Um, you know, personally, Frank Ocean and Kendrick Lamar yes. are two artists that, um, I've been waiting on for a while. And both of those are artists that are, uh, I think I, I would call them very secretive and, uh, you know, that the music will come when it comes, we won't know that it's about to happen and then we'll have it. Um, and I'm, you know, fingers crossed that this is the, this is the year that that would take place, but those are, um, some of the big ones for me. So, but I, you know, every year, uh, this time of year, I hate winter. I'm just looking forward to like get me to warm weather and summer and new music that I can just blast from the stereo and uh, feel a little better about everything. So. um, Oh,
0: I hear you. I I also wanted to plug one more album uh, that I just remembered scrolling through my Spotify. Um, Shamir's album, uh, their latest album, heterosexuality. Uh, Ironic title because Shamir is another um, openly queer gender non-conforming just like a Mm -hmm. fabulous um lgbtq artist but um it's so interesting it really it has so many sonically it's all over the place but like in the best way possible um it's truly a hodgepodge of different influences and i and i've read a few articles about the album now um and yeah he really pulled from like a different influence very you know intentionally per each song yeah so that that one i would definitely give a shout out to um absolutely it cool. opens on a song called "Gay Agenda," which is
1: everything to me. <laughs> That's perfect. Well, where can we go to find more of your work? Where would you direct our listeners to go to um, kind of see what you're doing?
0: For sure, um, MTV News is one place. I feel like I'm always popping up there, um, and whenever they do live coverage of you know big events in music like the Grammys or the AMAs, um, I usually help cover. So, MTVNews.com is great. Um also for logo, our editorial platform is New Now Next. Um, that's newnownext.com. Um and yeah, I also have a portfolio website where folks can keep up with me. Um I write a little bit all over the place <laughs> and I yeah. do do a bit of a bit of everything. Yeah. So that's just my name, Sammanzella.com. But yeah, Perfect. that's about it.
1: All right. Well, Sam, this has been great. Thanks for coming on to talk about fun. Um, and just kind of like spent some time reflecting on that album. I loved your article, and it's a blast to get a chance to talk about it.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Kyle. Yeah, this was super fun. And I, I love that album, and I'm always excited to revisit it.
1: Absolutely. Well, that is going to do it for this episode of Long Live the Music. Uh, if you like what you hear, um, subscribe to the podcast, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you consume your podcast content. And of course, come visit us at itsalldead.com. That is going to do it for this episode. I'm Kyle Hawk, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Long Live the Music. If you like our show, come find us on Twitter and Facebook at It's All Dead. And of course, come visit our website, itsalldead.com.